the Science Inside podcast. This is the Science Inside with Elna. Hello and welcome to the show. It's the one hour of the week where we get a little bit nerdy here. And it is all about science, but nothing nothing too hardcore. Don't worry for your Monday evening. It's really science that affects all of us. That's a part of our lives. And by now, we've all probably heard about the listeriosis outbreak. Oh, and here on the show, we've even covered the health side of it before. So I trust that you know all about the bacteria and the disease as itself. I, I've got to say, I was quite surprised that they found the source. And when these certain processing plants and factories from Enterprise Foods were identified, of course, the natural and right reaction is that a lot of meat was pulled from the shelves. From your pick and paper loney to your fancy woolly salami sticks, they were all in the same WhatsApp group. And you were told to throw away products or return them to the store, which is all very good for the safety uh, of all of us. It's like we all suddenly got allergic to prepared meats, right? Now you don't want to touch a quarter anymore. You're a little bit too scared. But let's be honest, they maybe weren't the healthiest choice to start off with. And there is, of course, a possible court case coming um, in terms of this. But all that meat is contaminated and now it's being thrown out where did it go how is it being taken care of and can we really be certain that other kinds of meat are safe that's all on our main story later tonight so we wanted to give that story some time just because it is a very important one so we're going to skip and science today, unfortunately. But later, we look at the scientists behind the science with Professor Elelwani Hamukondo, and we end off the show with our March Mammal Madness, which is like a fantasy football league, but for nerds. So stick around that if you have been playing along. You can find us on social media. It's the Science Inside on Facebook or VowFM on Facebook. You can also find us at VowFM, hashtag Science Inside on Twitter. And the WhatsApp line is 084 I'm sure you have that one saved by now. But first off, we're going to go into our news. This week's Science Headline. And as always, I have our producer, Bridget LaPere, with me here. Hi, Bridget. What do you have in the news for us today? Hi, Elna. How are you? I am very well, and I'm, I'm keen to hear. Yes, the news. According to the Science Daily and the Endocrine Society, the pill for men is well on its way to becoming a reality. Mm. New research shows a possible breakthrough in the world of oral contraceptives, particularly for men. Dimethylin unicanoate, I hope I pronounced it properly. That's a big name. That is D-M-A-U for short in its name. You can imagine it is much like the pill that many women take daily, but it's only for men. The study was conducted at the University of Washington Medical Center and Harbor UCLA Medical Center in Torrance, California. So a lot of us have been thinking about this for many years, Bridget, either formally in terms of science, in terms of the male reproductive system, giving men the power to, uh, you know, control when they are able to conceive and when they aren't. But on the other side, I think informally, a lot of women are like, why is it all on us, bro? So I think it's definitely good. And this could be the beginning of more effective family planning. But how exactly does this DMAU work? Well, it's an oral contraceptive that combines the activity of an androgen, which is um, a male hormone like testosterone and a progesterone, which is medication generally used for birth control. Okay, so you can have all the pills in the world doesn't mean men are going to take them. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, some men are, are, def- are uh, you know, have trouble taking a multivitamin. Um, but I'm sure there's lots of women who have trouble with that too. So how can we uh, know whether this is actually going to work for men? 
Apparently, men say that they prefer a daily pill as a reversible contraceptive over long, over long acting um, injections or topical creams. So we might see more men taking contraceptives in future. Okay, so we, when we cover these kind of studies, we always have to understand a little bit about them because there's a big difference in just asking your one male friend to take a pill or asking 2,000 of them. How was the study conducted? Well, 100 healthy men between the ages of 18 and 50 years were involved. The study ran for about a month and three different doses of DMAU were given to different groups. Okay, so what were the results? Well, they noticed a significant suppression in the levels of testosterone and two other hormones required for sperm production in the group that was given the highest dose of DMAU. The low levels of testosterone were consistent with effective male contraception shown in other long-term studies. That's really good to know because one of my concerns was that it was just a month long. How are you supposed to know if it's effective? But that does answer it if, the, if they're comparing to other long-term studies. But this isn't the first male contraceptive that we've heard of, and I'm sure it's not the last one. What makes DMAU such a breakthrough? Well, it doesn't cause liver inflammation for one, like other oral forms of testosterone. And DMAU contains a long-chain fatty acid, which slows down the, the, the clearance uh, process, allowing it to be taken just once a day, not twice like many others. Okay, so most women will know that uh, contraceptive uh, pills have a variety of side effects, so I'm sure they're going to want to know, is this hitting the men also? Well, this makes me very happy as well. <laughs> no, Bridget. <laughs> the only side effects noted were weight gain in all the subjects and a decrease in good cholesterol, but both these was said to be mild and even though the pill lowers testosterone levels none of the subjects complained about uh, were signs of testosterone deficiency or excess of it listen we can't we can't find joy in the fact that men <laughs> have to now also take the pill or have the choice to <laughs> we really can't even though we are both women on this show um but i mean, guess it's safe to say now that these kinds of studies mean that there is definitely more family planning um, about to happen, at least in this sense. There are more long-term studies currently underway to confirm that DMAU taken daily blocks sperm production. So we can have high hopes that this contraceptive will quickly become the norm for society. I'm still keen to see how this would actually work out in relationships. Do both partners, if it is a heterosexual relationship, do both partners take contraceptives? I think as much as the science interests me here, the social science around this is quite a fascinating one. So I hope they do some psychological studies around this also. I have some other news, very much different. It is some news on the poison used to assassinate a former Russian spy from uh, sciencemag.org is where the story is from. You might remember the quite recent news of the assassination attempt of a former Russian spy called Skripal, who together with his daughter became very sick in the UK because of uh, this assassination attempt. And of course, there are lots of politics around this between the, the UK and Russia, but on the science side of things, we have learned a little bit more about this deadly poison that was used. It's called a Novichok Newcomer Class Nerve Agent. And don't let the word newcomer fool you because it was created by Soviet chemists in the 1970s already. And it's incredible that we even know this because very few experts are willing to or even able to share more insights on this lethal, lethal poison now or ever. But scientists are able to obtain some information from the few available resources. So why is this poison in particular getting so much of attention? Not just because it was used in this particular case. It has more to do with the fact that compared to traditional nerve agents, Novichok contains an amine, which is a substance derived from ammonia, and it's it, there is a big extra portion in Novichok of this stuff. And this is quite bad news because it makes it difficult to find the right kind of antidote. 
Another problem is that this amine group could allow it to target more enzymes than the traditional nerve agents. So Novichok acts fast. It doesn't, you know, present only months later. And it only needs the victim to be exposed to very small quantities for its effect to to really act. I mean, there were talks of it might have only been inserted in sort of the... You, you know the car and that or or along the suitcase of one of them and that would have been enough hmm. so could this possibly be the new you know uh, weapon of mass destruction for now i think it's safe to say no they, uh, you know, developing this poison on its own is a very dangerous pro- uh, process. So you don't want to make a lot of it. And information about it is being guarded very closely. So who really knows whether that's, you know, by Russian weapon makers or the Western military chemists trying to counter them. There's not that much we know about it yet. Oh, wow. Okay, so I guess this is good news. Well, for now, as long as the information doesn't land up in the wrong hands, if you know what I mean. Although in this case, I feel like all hands are wrong hands. Can we just stop making poison? But maybe that's just me. (laughs) So how do the investigators identify the poison used? That's a really good question. Um, They did find some residue on the clothes and belongings in um, Scripple's home. And so so it was definitely aimed at him and also at the place where they ate before falling sick. Because the victims have survived this long, it can be concluded that the nerve agent was not ingested. So had they eaten it, they would have probably died. That's that's quite scary to think that a simple touch or a simple whiff of this poison could mark the last day of your life on this earth. How exactly does it affect the, the body? So nerve agents attach to a particular enzyme in the body and thereby cut off communication between the body and the brain. That's putting it very simply. And without any medical attention, there's a buildup in the synapses, which is the thing that connects to nerve cells. And this erodes muscle function and alters signals from the brain that control respiration and maintain blood pressure which is of course very important Mm, it's very fascinating yeah understanding something so secretive (laughs) yeah i think there's a lot to learn here in terms of science and the other takeaway is if you happen to be a russian spy maybe just cook at home like maybe don't eat pizza (laughs) <laughs> but that's not, that's just some free advice from me. That was the Science Inside News. We will continue after the break with the show. This is the Science Inside with Elma. Hello and welcome to the show. My name is indeed Elma Schutz. And we now go into a story around listeriosis, which I know you've heard a lot about if you're a South African. Everybody is suddenly scared of polony as if it's a poisonous snake. But there is another question that this brings up. Sure, we've recalled all the meat. We are keeping each other safe. But where does that meat go? What happens to contaminated meat? And not just listeriosis, but how do we know in general that our meat is safe? I think... These are some very crucial questions in this time where we are facing the biggest listeriosis or listeria bacteria outbreak that the world has seen up to this point. So we really do need some of these answers. And hopefully science can give us some answers. We go now to a story by our producer, Bridget LePere, about what exactly happens to contaminated meat. Following the listeriosis outbreak, the Science Inside team decided on expanding the topic by looking at other factors that may have given rise to listeriosis. This week, we tackle the subject of meat, how it is being handled, how is it being disposed of, and the precautionary measures taken to ensure its safety. And at this moment, I'm standing outside a very popular and big franchise butchery in Lanasia, and I'm going to speak to the assistant manager, Gulam Mohammed Javeh. Join me as I go and find out what their store safety and hygiene processes are when it comes to maintaining the food safety regulations around meat. (laughs) 
safety regulations our butcher is the first and foremost front of the butcher we wear safety gloves beard covers head nets caps our boots get sanitized our machines get sanitized every hour so coming to cleanliness we i think we are on, on our game on it most of our meat that, uh, that gets expired we dispose of it by burying it or by burning it at the dump site there's a whole dug for us which we bury it in the burning of it gets done on our premises. The carcass that we actually cut up, the people use it for soup. Those actually are deboned meat, 100% safe. Because once it's deboned, it's frozen, so there's no chance of it going off. We get inspected quite often, it's either once a month or twice a month. It depends all on the inspectors. We supply right through the country. We've got about four or five branches. We are also named. To give us context to this topic, we speak to food control expert and microbiologist Dr. Lucia Anelik. She explains what the general regulations are concerning food and safety practices for both the food industry and the consumer. Listeria is well known actually for many years in the international community. So it was in the early 80s that was found to be an organism that causes disease in humans. Prior to that, it was only regarded as an organism that caused disease in animals. Since the 80s, a number of outbreaks have occurred across the globe. And they have typically been found, or the organism has typically been found in ready-to-eat food. And those are the foods that are not cooked before consumption at home. So it is important just to understand that the organism is out there. It is naturally present in the environment and therefore food safety practices both at an industry level as well as at a consumer level need to be adhered to in order to ensure that people do not get sick. Well, the best way to dispose of meat that is contaminated with listeria from a consumer perspective is to take it back to the retailer where they purchased it from because the retailers have got systems in place to actually dispose of the food in the correct manner. Well, this is, this is true for any meat. I'm not specifically referring to meat products that were recalled uh, in this particular outbreak, but any meat that is expired for whatever reason should not be disposed next to the side of the road because, first of all, it's ungainly to have that kind of rubbish from a visual perspective. And also, people could pick it up and take it home and want to cook it or eat it or whatever the case may be. And that meat would certainly not be fit for human consumption. It's the same as an animal that is killed on the road. The last thing you want is for people to go and pick up parts of that carcass and take it home and cook it and eat it. Well, there are uh, various regulations in place that the National Department of Health has, as well as the National Department of Agriculture, Forestry and Fisheries. So DAF would typically be dealing with animals that are going into abattoirs for slaughter. And they have got specific requirements for inspection of carcasses, for the hygiene of the environment, for the hygiene of the employees, the hygiene of the equipment they might be using for slaughter and so on. And then the Department of Health would have specific requirements from a hygiene perspective for products that are now going to be processed. So if you take the raw meat carcass coming out of the abattoir, if that is going to be processed into a different kind of product, then that would be under the mandate of the Department of Health and they do have various regulations in place for that. Expiry dates, especially on perishable foods, and this is fresh foods like fresh milk, fresh cheeses, the soft cheeses in particular. The hard cheeses have got a much longer shelf life, but the soft cheeses are regarded as perishable foods. Fresh fish is also a perishable food. So where there are expiry dates, specifically used by dates, on those products, consumers really do need to try and stick to those dates as much as possible. In response to how the Department of Health was able to pick up where the initial outbreak of Listeria monocytogene came from, we spoke to the head of enteric diseases at the National Institute for Communicable Diseases, Dr. Juna Thomas. So since January 2017, we've been recording 
all cases of people who develop listeriosis in the country. And we asked the laboratories to send the bacterial isolates that were recovered from these ill people to us at the NICD. We tested them using a specialized genetic fingerprinting test called whole genome sequencing. And we were able to show that over 90% of patients who develop disease overall had the exact same strain of listeria. So we knew that that was the outbreak strain. In January, a group of young children attending a crash in Soweto all developed illness and were admitted to Chris Harney Baraguanas Hospital. Listeria was confirmed as the cause of illness in one child and it was the outbreak strain. Very importantly, though, is that an environmental health practitioner from Department of Health visited the crash on the same day the children were admitted and took samples of any food that was still in the fridge that the children had eaten. This included the polony. That polony sample tested positive for the outbreak strain as well. And this is a polony that was manufactured by the Enterprise Foods Production Facility in Polokwani. So a team from Department of Health and NICD and um, two food safety experts from the World Health Organization visited the Polokwani Enterprise Foods Production Facility and did an investigation there and samples were taken from the food production facility environment as well as from Poloni. And we then found that many parts of the factory were actually contaminated with this outbreak strain. We also found the outbreak strain on Poloni chubs itself that were already produced and ready to go out for distribution into the shops. So we know definitively that this is the source of the outbreak. We've linked the patients that are getting disease with the outbreak strain. We found the outbreak strain in the Poloni that made the children sick. Then we followed the Poloni to the facility and we found that same outbreak strain throughout the facility as well as in Poloni that was sampled at the facility. Okay, so in the case of Enterprise, the Department of Health issued that Enterprise production facility with a compliance notice and then Enterprise closed the facility and um, had to do the recall of the, the contaminated products. And what happens now is Enterprise Foods is undertaken to clean the facility and try and address the infrastructural problems that could have led to an increased likelihood of the environment becoming contaminated and the products becoming contaminated. Then the, the environment and the facility will have to be resampled to see if the, there's any listeria still remaining in the high-risk areas and then production will start and then they have to resample again once production starts because you restart production in a facility that's thought to be clean, do you actually pick up if there are recurrent issues with hysteria? So it all depends on the individual municipality, how many environmental health practitioners they have, what their resources are for funding, testing, and what the priorities are within the municipality because environmental health practitioners have got a lot of other routine responsibilities as well. So it really depends on the municipality and on their resources and then also how many food production facilities that municipality has to oversee. So it's extremely variable across the country. Unfortunately, the regulations at present are quite weak in giving explicit guidance as to what other food safety assessments and monitoring should be in place. And I think that that is certainly one of the gaps that has been acknowledged by the National Department of Health. And the minister said that in his address on the 4th of March, that that is a recognized gap that has to be addressed urgently. So part of the problem is that the food manufacturers and producers have been self-regulating to a large extent for a long time. 
So obviously it depends on the food manufacturer, what standards they're ascribing to and what their own food safety plans and monitoring programs are. And that obviously will affect how effective it is at picking up problems like hysteria in the environment. We also spoke to the group communications and stakeholder manager, Navashni Naika of Tiger Brands, to hear what the developments are around ensuring that their facilities and products are safe from listeria once more. First thing I want to say to you is that as a large food manufacturing company in South Africa, we take the monitoring and evaluating of food products very seriously. We produce quality food products and we have many, many different regulations from a food production perspective that we have to adhere to. When it comes to viruses, pathogens and bacteria, we do ongoing testing for this across our basket. And in particular, in the manufacturing of processed meat products, we follow a standard called SAMS 885 which says that for listeria, because it is found everywhere in the environment, they do allow for a limit of listeria that says not more than 100 colony-forming units per one gram of finished product. So we've adhered to all of those standards, and the detection that we found was well beneath that level that was required. So we found a detection of less than 10 in one product, And we proactively then approached the DOH and the NICD with our finding. Some of the steps we took is that we immediately stopped producing the product. We quarantined all the product that we had in our distribution centers. We withdrew the product from trade. And then we immediately reached out to the NICD and the DOH to say this is what we've detected, even though was well within the limits from a guideline perspective. And why we did that is with the FT6 strain that's going around that has been linked to the outbreak of listeriosis, we don't know how virulent that FT6 strain is. So it could be that a count less than 100 could lead to illness. And we didn't want to take any chances. So what have we done since then? We've amplified our testing and our monitoring proactively for listeria detection. We've also followed a, despite SANS 885 saying nothing more than 100 colony forming unit counts, we go for zero detection. I can confirm that the listeria detection that they found was not in our products. It was in the environment. So they did find traces of the ST6 strain in our plant at our factory in Polokwani, but not in any of our products. That was a story done by our producer, Bridget LePere, about where exactly the meat went and whether our meat in South Africa is really safe. We continue the, the show after a break uh, on The Science Inside. Keep listening. You're listening to The Science Inside, bringing you science around major news events. We thought we wouldn't have time, but look at that. We do. For the fun and strange part of the science inside, it's called Unscience. And it's about some research that maybe you couldn't believe actually exists. Today's information comes from Rice University and Science Daily. Unusual. Unlikely. Unscience. And as always, I have our producer, Bridget LePere, in studio with me to discuss this. And people travel to all kinds of countries every day. Just go to our tumble and you will see it. And you might want to travel because you want a new challenge, because you want to see and learn from other people's culture, or build and strengthen relationships, or maybe you just really want to have fun on a beach in Bali. It's all very very uh, very good reasons to travel but I want to give you one more Bridget because I want to know have you ever wanted to move to a place where nobody knows you yeah I have actually then I do anything I want <laughs> well there seems to be some research behind that because according to researchers from Rice University Columbia University and the University of North Carolina 
living abroad triggers one to introspect. So some people grapple with different cultural values and norms that are just very different to those of their home countries. And this is helpful in discovering which values and norms define who you are. And they just reflect yourself. So basically what they're saying is living abroad shows you who you are. Hmm, this sounds interesting. Please, please go on and tell me more. So there is a famous quote by the author Herman von Kaiserling that said, the shortest pathway to know oneself leads around the world. I love that one. And it's almost 100 years old, but it seems to be true according to science. And most research across, uh, across the subject has been on do people live abroad or not? But this research aimed to distinguish between how long people lived abroad and the number of foreign countries they lived in. And it was proven that the longer people live abroad, the more they get to know themselves, not just the other country. And as a result, the more likely they are to develop a better understanding of what they like and dislike, what makes them happy and sad, what makes them laugh, and what they enjoy doing the most. So these are some of the things we usually assume we know about ourselves, but actually traveling could unlock more. Thankfully, traveling is also getting a bit cheaper, but I'm not convinced that this would be the only reason one would go and live abroad. I get you. Um, Let me put this a bit differently. There are experiences we call transitions, like getting divorced or losing a job, and they can decrease your confidence in terms of knowing yourself, right? They can unsettle you. Yeah. Living abroad is also a transition, but instead of us feeling like we're losing bits of our knowledge about ourselves, we're increasing them, but in a bittersweet way. Bittersweet. (laughs) Yeah, because you may get to live your best life on a beach in Bali where nobody knows you, but there comes a time when you really miss being home around all of your loved ones. Nonetheless, time spent in foreign country obviously has a lot of benefits and this clear sense of self seems to be one of them. Hmm. It reminds me of that biblical proverb that says, what profiteth a man to gain the whole world yet lose his own soul? Yeah, and this kind of proves that in a weird way, saying if you, if you go all over the world, what you might find is yourself. <laughs> this is unusual and likely and science. Keep listening to the science aside. Unusual, unlikely, unscience. You're listening to the science inside, bringing you science around major news events. Hello and welcome to the show. We do bring you science around the big news events, but behind all of these pieces of science, there are scientists. And we like to look at them just with the last little bit of the show. Today we are speaking to Elwani Amagondo, who is a professor at the University of Cape Town in occupational therapy. For our listeners, occupational therapy, if you haven't heard of it or you're thinking, Wait, is that the same as like industrial psychology? No, it's not. It's actually one uh, of the health sciences and it uses forms of physical therapy and other tricks and skills to help people do what they need to do in their ordinary lives, especially when it comes to disabilities or uh, some kinds of injuries and just generally promote health and well-being. The professor was previously head of occupational therapy at UCT and served as special advisor on transformation to the vice chancellor after the fall of the Rhodes statue, which you might remember. But today we are speaking about the science. Thank you so much for joining us. Oh, this is a pleasure. Um, uh, Thank you for having me. I know that lots of our listeners may not necessarily understand OT or occupational therapy as a field. So perhaps we can just start with the basics about what occupational therapy really does, especially in a country and a context like South Africa. Mm, um, I thought you did a beautiful introduction there um, because, you know, um, you really hit um, some of the key elements of the profession. But what I want to highlight is that occupational therapy 
is really about people living or leading meaningful lives, right? We can be constrained in our ability to live or lead meaningful lives. Um, we can be constrained because we have impairments uh, that are within us or impairments that develop um, with time, such as uh, when we age. Or we can be constrained because of lack of access to resources. And this is where South Africa becomes very uh, unique in a way that occupational therapists practice in that this lack of access to resources in a society such as ours where we still have gross uh, economic inequality um, that uh, finds expression in in many ways um, and unfortunately still along racial lines, uh, gender and, 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 and levels of ability it becomes very important for us uh, as occupational therapists to not only look at impairment in the sense of constraints within an individual. So we are pushed to look at people within context and look at the barriers that um, are faced by people such that they are not able to lead meaningful lives. Mm. And that, of course, is focused on on certain on people who have, like you're saying, obstructions in some way or difficulties in some way, but it goes far beyond that. And I loved hearing about your PhD, which looked at the role of play around children in specifically African families. How has this role of play evolved? Mm. So, you're right in that, um, you know, one can look at the individual, one can look at the context, at what is really, you know, from whichever perspective. There are many other professions that look at uh, disabilities um, or, or impairments as such uh, that people may have. But what sets occupational therapy apart is that it focuses on what people do. Mm. So we look at occupation as the everyday things that people do, some ordinary, some extraordinary. Um, and we look at these in context. So we believe that what people do is an expression of what they're able to navigate within their particular context. So we call these things that people do occupations. So differently from how occupation is often looked at, uh, where people only um, focus on paid employment, we look at occupation as that which occupies our resources of time, energy, and um personal uh, aspirations. Play is one occupation that has been very fascinating for me. Uh, I've looked at play not only as what occupies uh, children's uh, time, but also as a way of being in the world and a form of intelligence, really. Um, if you think about creativity, if you think about what people are able to do um, through playful um, expression, uh, it, it goes beyond the, the, the playground and, 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 and children manipulating objects, uh, which we often want to call toys. But in the arts, there's a lot of... Um, playfulness that often we don't pay attention to. Now, when you look at play in a way that um, encompasses uh, all of us within the lifespan, 
for children, adults, and, and, and grandparents, you can begin to appreciate how important it will be for a family to be able to tell a story about play within uh, uh, what the family regards as this is us, this is who we are (laughs) um, across generations, right? Mm -hmm. Where a child may be playing and grandma might say, I remember doing this when I was a child. And the parents would also say, hmm, I remember. And perhaps you could even have the three generations play together, right? If you think of um, uh, games that people have in their homes, there are families that have been able able to keep uh, board games, for, is, for instance, across generations. Uh, when we talk about Halloween, as a season in the calendar or a day or a public holiday or whatever um, that means uh, uh, in in, in society, you could find a family that says it makes sense now as it did 50 years ago. Where it becomes a problem is where you find families that cannot tell a coherent story about how play has evolved over time. So for starters, they're not able to identify themselves in the way that their own children play, or they no longer are able to remember how it used to be. So that it begs the question, what has happened? So the question is not so much about how play has changed, but more about who is in control. If a family can say, hmm, when we moved from this continent to that continent, we were able to keep some of our ways of being in the world that we call play, and we lost some because of one, two, three as reasons. That is a family that is able to tell a coherent story. But when you find a family that is unable to have that conversation and to a point where children can be punished for the way they play today because it's completely foreign to the adults, that's where I come in. That makes a lot of sense because I think we might notice these changes that we are playing very differently than um, perhaps our parents or our grandparents did or five-year-olds now are playing, especially with the introduction of a lot more technology. And I can imagine that that really does change, like you're saying, our occupation in terms of what are we doing with our time and with that shaping the nation in a way. Um, Absolutely. I wanted to ask, and we ask all of our listeners this, it's such a great, wonderful thing to get a bit of an insight into your field of study and of work, but what would the one thing be or a couple of the things be that you wish uh, the general public, public, just our listeners on VFM, would learn from your field? What do you think it can teach us? I think the one point that I would want to stress is that occupational therapy is not a discipline. It is a profession that draws from various disciplines. This is quite unique. That earlier when we started, you said, as an example, occupational therapy is not industrial psychology, right? Even though occupational therapists could be in the place of work and work alongside industrial psychologists. What makes occupational therapy unique is that it straddles disciplines which are found in the social sciences as well as disciplines that are found within biomedicine. So this is a profession that is informed by disciplines that often are located within the university across faculties, (laughs) whether it's social sciences or the humanities, 
and sometimes medicine as a faculty or health sciences. So we often find ourselves having to um, explain what makes us different uh, in ways that invites engagement with the other faculty, which is actually a strength um, than, 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 than a weakness. Yes, being able to fill in a space that needs to be filled, but yet move into the same direction other, fa- other directions or other fields are working in. As, especially when we in, are engaging with what people do in context. How are you going to understand context if you have not delved into sociology? <laughs> yes. Right? That's exactly the point. So we, we, we draw from sociology, we draw from psychology, as well as physiology, uh, pathology, the clinical sciences, in order that we can see the human being holistically mm-hmm. and can be able to say the constraints may very well include impairment within the individual, but there's much more at play here that comes from context. Yes, that makes so much sense. It's been so good to get a little bit of an insight into occupational therapy and how it really affects all of us, not just certain people or could be of benefit yeah. to all of us. We've been Absolutely. speaking to Professor Alalwani Mugondo from UCT. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Alma. It was a real pleasure. After the Bye-bye. break... Goodbye. After the break uh, on the science side, we look at our MMM March Mammal Madness scores. This is the science side with Elna. Hello and welcome. If you just tuned in, you have missed most of the conversations, but you are tuning in for some trash talk, which yes, happens even on science shows. It is our check-in for March Mammal Madness, which if you've never heard of it, it's kind of like a fantasy football league, but for nerds. It happens once a year, and here on VAFM, we play with the guys from Sports Hub. Hi, Anthony Teixeira. Thank you for joining us. Thank you very much. I am sure you want to know what's been happening on the scoreboard. I do. I really do. So, we have gone through round one of all of the categories yes. for March Mammal Madness, which has given us some scores, and we are already about halfway through round two. So, I'm just going to tell us round one between, between everyone. Yeah. So, the person with the most scores at the moment is Lebo from Science, okay. who, who does play on the Vits basketball team. So maybe she has a little bit of both disciplines. Yeah, I feel like she's 50-50. In her blood. I feel like she's not. <laughs> <laughs> um, then we have my... Um, Myself and myself and Ahmed, who so one one okay. at twenty. Okay. Okay. And then in the middle of us, there is you, kind so at twenty one. Aha! Yes. So you're doing okay. You're doing okay. And Mike Pedro, also from the sports team, yes. is at seventeen. So okay, that's not bad. Good, that's not good bad. effort. Yeah, 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 yeah. He's yeah. in. Um, I have seen some of the results from the second round, and it pains to tell me that you're doing pretty well. Really? Um, As in me personally or the sports You personally. Okay. um, Which I'm only going to hold against you a large amount. Okay, okay. But but I feel like we might I feel get like I'm comfortable with this as well. <laughs> I feel like we might get over it uh, with our mutual love for Tasmanian Devils and Kimono Dragons. Yeah, I, I feel not so much on the Tasmanian Devil. Uh, went out pretty early on my roster sheet. Oh, really? But Mike Pedro had him to win and I yes. think so have... I I need to check again, but I had him pretty far up the. Okay. Up the I I think that little that little guy that has little some, devil has <laughs> has some teeth. The one thing that's a big question mark for me is in the category wins the cat away when the cat is away, green anaconda against a tardigrade, which is a very small. Yeah. It's a it's a like a micro animal, like a really tiny. You can't even see it with your eyes. Okay. The anaconda one. But 
The March Mammal Madness team is being very strange about this. How so? So they are saying that the anaconda won, but wait, because, because, because. So do you think that maybe that little parasite thingy my bobby yes. is going to take over the anaconda's body? I think that's a very good scientific guess. So we will Ooh. have to wait till till next time to see what happens I, as we finish this off. I do believe there's bad news for me because my eventual winner is already out of the competition. Oh, yes. Yes, you had the Cape Town baboon. Yeah, because I'm South African so you and just that's thought. what we do. <laughs> we support our people. Um, you maybe shouldn't support your people when they're going against dinosaurs. Yeah, but... I just had faith. I thought maybe they could do, make tools and stuff. Although I have seen those baboons in Cape Town. and They I are would, scary. Yeah, I would trust them with many things. So if you don't know what it is, you can find March Mammal Madness online. You can still play along uh, and we will be catching up on it again next week, even though March will be over and then we will see. Who wins? Yeah, if I'm already leading in round two, I think Sports Hub has got this. This is the end of the Science Inside and we are giving up the airwaves for the Sports Hub team. But we are never giving up hope, my friends, because maybe we can still win. Maybe my Tasmanian devil will still win. But you have been listening to the Science Inside, making science interesting, applicable, but also a little bit fun, even if it does mean making jokes with the Sports Hub team. Today on the show, we had a very interesting story about where is the meat going that was infected by listeria. And we also heard from an occupational therapist and how play is quite an important part of what we do as a country, actually. A big thank you goes to all of our guests, including Elwani Hamugondo, Dr. Lucia Andrish, Dr. Juno Thomas, Ghulam Mohammed Java Butchery, and Navashini Naika from Tiger, Tiger Brands. As always, I have a whole team hiding behind the scenes. Production by Bridget Lepere, Harmony Molefi, Lebohang Madisha, and Gloria Mabuzo. And take by Kuklano Sahami. You can find all of our podcasts. Please do note we have changed the website. It's now called vits.journalism.coza. You can find the Science Inside on there. You can also find us all over social media. My name is Elna Schutz. The Science Inside is produced by the Wits Radio Academy, funded in part by the South African Department of Science and Technology. And we will be back with more, more nerdiness next week. The Science Inside, Monday from 6 to 7 p.m. on OFM 88.1. The Science Inside Podcast.